0: You're listening to The McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this episode of The McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we are going to be putting on our favourite outfits, getting all dressed up and talking about the state of fashion who's making money, who's not, the rise of fashion tech, and the common challenges posed by sustainability. To discuss the state of fashion, I spoke with McKinsey partner Akim Berg, who's based in Frankfurt, and Imran Ahmed, who is the London-based founder and editor-in-chief of the media company Business of Fashion. We started by discussing the latest State of Fashion report, which is published jointly by Business of Fashion and McKinsey. I should point out that we recorded this episode immediately before the outbreak of coronavirus in China. While we do talk about the state of fashion in Asia, we don't address coronavirus directly in this episode. So uh, Imran and uh, Akim, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot.
0: So uh, Imran, why don't you start by uh, giving us the highlights from the latest report? I know we, we survey a large number of fashion executives to take the temperature of the of the industry. So are they cheerful, are they miserable? What, what are they saying about the outlook?
1: With an economic environment that's getting more and more uncertain, there is more and more uncertainty in the fashion industry. You know, for several years now, You know, executives have been using words like challenging and changing when we've talked to them for this annual survey. But this year, the percentage of executives that were positive about the the growth to come next year was at its lowest level ever. It was like down to 9% compared to 49% last year. So there, there has been a radical, important shift in mindset and outlook. The big emerging markets, particularly China that the luxury and fashion industries have relied upon for the last few years to continue to drive growth. The growth there seems to be slowing. And then there's political uncertainty, geopolitical tensions, trade wars, and all sorts of other you know, unknown elements that are lurking in the background. And I think people are just very cautious at the moment. So. That's kind of how I'd sum it up. I don't know, Akim, what you would add.
2: No, I think this is a very good uh, description of what we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, We obviously have also seen an intensifying competition. Uh, All the digital players have entered the playing field and have clearly impact uh, on the more incumbent players. And we generally see that there is an increased polarization Uh, happening in the industry. We see that the top uh, performers uh, get a bigger and bigger share of uh, the profit pool. Uh, By now, um, only 45 percent of all the players that we survey in our McKinsey Global Fashion Index are value contributing, while 55 percent are value destroying. Um, And uh, in general, you know, it's getting more polarized. It is more difficult uh, to make a profit, uh, in particular if you are a mid-sized, mid-market player um, because you have to deal with the omni-channel world, with digitization, with sustainability. So, there's a lot of demands on what you need to do and there is a, a small number of very big players that are incredibly successful, incredibly profitable and they can afford to invest into all the things you would want to invest into one of the
1: things that comes up in conversations that i have with some of the executives at the helm of some of the smaller but still sizable businesses out there is there's been a kind of an ongoing wave of consolidation in the industry which has made some of the biggest players even bigger you know most recently we saw lvmh gobble up tiffany in a 16.2 billion billion dollar deal and as these big players like LVMH and Caring on the luxury side, but then also Inditex and H&M on the kind of fast fashion side, as they continue to get bigger, the other players in those spaces are finding it harder and harder to kind of keep up.
0: So, Akim, uh, you mentioned the McKinsey Global Fashion Index there, uh, which is this this ranking of the 20 most profitable fashion companies. It is a fascinating list. It's also a, a diverse list. Lots of different types of companies in there. So what what unites them? What are they doing right?
2: I think, as you rightly say, we've started to publish a list that we call the super winners. It's a very diverse group, as you say. But um, you can clearly see some of the big trends uh, of the last couple of years impacting that list. So, athleisure and sports was uh, top of mind uh, now for a couple of years, double-digit growth and you can see players like you know, Nike heading the list, but also Adidas and uh, now Lululemon and Anta Sports, uh, you know, entered that list, um, but you can also see that other trend like luxury at the top end of the market um, is represented, LVMH, caring, MS. But you also see the discount players that have done quite well uh, in recent years you know, on that list. TJ Maxx, as an example. So we see a lot of the trends that have you know, impacted the market also coming through, through the size, but also the profitability uh, of those businesses.
0: Imran, uh, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think the other thing is the power of brands. And if you look at this list, while they may be at different, you know, positioning in the kind of overall market from all the way from, you know, value to luxury, what you do notice is brands are still really, really important in this industry, you know? And so Nike, LVMH, Lululemon, these, and Burberry, these are all examples of really powerful brands. And while operational efficiency and kind of staying in touch with where the consumer wants to shop when it comes to retail and omnichannel and some of these other things continue to be really important we shouldn't underestimate the importance of brands and a lot of these bigger players that are generating disproportionate amount of economic profit they can invest more in their brands and in this age that we live in which is very similar for other consumer facing industries you know a lot of that investment is happening in the digital sphere and the creation of content on social media and you know these you know companies especially the high end fashion companies what they've always specialized in is creating really really beautiful high value content that creates some kind of emotional response or reaction within the consumer base that has now taken to a whole new level on social media channels and it's happening on a daily basis so we've gone from this environment where these companies are planning kind of quarterly ad campaigns linked to seasons, and they're moving to more robust always-on content campaigns, events, immersive experiences, all of which play out on social media all the time. And so the power of the brand is still really important.
2: I think it's also interesting uh, what we do not see on that list because You do not see any department stores on that list. You do not see any pure play players on that list, uh, marketplaces. You only see now uh, two editions from Asia, which are new on the list. So we didn't have an Asian player on the top 20 last year. And I think that also tells you something. There is, uh, you know, certain business models that are in decline. There's others like the digital players that are more going for market share than for absolute profitability. And uh, we should also expect to see more Asian players on that top 20 list going forward.
0: I think it's always worth pointing out that these are all publicly listed companies, right? Because we need access to the public data to do the calculations. And there are some very meaningful privately owned players in fashion who you know, if the data was available, might be on the list. That's that's right, isn't it?
2: So, you are correct. Uh, the list uh, is based on publicly available data. And therefore, we are using uh, listed companies. But it's also uh, important to recognize that there is a significant number of privately owned companies out there that are also quite sizable. Yeah. So, we have companies that have more than 10 billion turnover, like Chanel, But you also get a lot of companies that are somewhere between 1 billion and 5, 7, 8 billion uh, in turnover, not to talk about, you know, hundreds and hundreds, uh, probably thousands companies um, that are somewhere between a couple of 100 million and a billion in turnover. So a lot of the the business is still privately owned. And that is a very significant part. We still believe that uh, the publicly available data gives us a good proxy on what's going on in this industry.
0: Could we just talk a little more about Asia? You you mentioned just now that a couple of Asian companies are now on the list of value creators. But what else is going on in the the very big Asian market?
1: Well, listen, I mean, uh, one thing that hasn't changed is that China remains the single most important market in the world. And in in the fashion industry and continues to drive a disproportionate share of growth however it is worth noting that you know growth is slowing in china and so one of the trends that we've identified for the state of fashion 2020 is that there are other markets and there's 1.2 billion consumers under the age of 30 in a range of countries from the Middle East to Southeast Asia and India. I think that's really important to note because although lots of fashion companies have been kind of razor focused on China in recent years, as they should be, what we were trying to underscore is that as the Chinese market does begin to slow down a bit while remaining important, it's worth considering and reevaluating their strategies and thinking for some of these other markets where there's an even younger, very hungry, emerging consumer base that is looking to connect with the fashion industry. The long-term fundamentals of India and Southeast Asia, Saudi Arabia, the UAE um,
2: and these other emerging markets remains very important
1: for the industry to consider.
2: In addition to what Imran just said, I think it's interesting to understand that competition is also increasing from China and from the Asian markets uh, in general. You see that when you look at the top 20 list where now Anta and HLA, you know, made it uh, among the top 20. Uh, They weren't there last year. The whole business has become much more borderless uh, and volatile and uh, Asian players will uh, take that to their advantage um, and will be even more present uh, on the Western markets. I think for a long time, uh,
1: our industry has thought of Asia in respect of two key dimensions first being kind of the workshop and manufacturing zone and second being the kind of consumer growing consumer base but there's a third dimension where Asia is playing a stronger and stronger role and so far as there's you know in Asia we're starting to see real competitors develop and as as they move kind of further up the value chain and start becoming direct competitors to some of the brands in the west you know there was this um, kind of phenomenon over the past year called the Amazon coat which you know became a viral sensation on social media but as it turns out they you know the manufacturer made five million dollars of sales in one month um, more than the company's entire revenue for 2017 from this coat and it was a Chinese manufacturer that produced this coat and then distributed it on Amazon
0: so that's a nice segue to the uh, fashion tech sector. And uh, we, we actually have fashion tech unicorns now, right? Um, you know, fashion startups with with billion-dollar valuations. So, you know, the obvious question is, how serious are these as competitors to the, the really big brands?
2: We are quite proud that we've foreseen uh, at least some of the unicorns that you're referring to. Uh, last year, we we looked into a trend that was called the end of ownership. Uh, And it was not only, you know, renting uh, merchandise, it was also, you know, the resale of pre-love products. uh, And we felt there's a bigger trend hitting the market. If you look at the valuation of Rent the One Way, uh, that is a very good example, you know, underpinning that. But we also see that players like uh, StockX or About You or Allbirds you know, all of those players have achieved valuations of one billion and more, which uh, underscores the relevance of fashion tech. Yeah, it's, uh, it's where the fashion side of the business uh, collides with technology. And also in the second tier, you, you see players like Third Love or Moda Operandi um, uh, that are active in lingerie uh, or in luxury fashion that uh, get high valuations and uh, that is in the end uh, a reflection of the appreciation they get from the consumers. So, there's a whole uh, part of the industry that is, you know, different and much more tech-driven than it used to be. It's not the old game of a great designer that has that just has the right silhouettes and colors and, uh, and handwriting and is therefore celebrated by the market. There's a whole new dimension to that play.
1: The one thing I would just add as a note of caution is that um, I suspect, and I think Akim would probably agree, that there's a bit of a bubble effect happening here around especially some of these direct-to-consumer companies um, that have raised a significant amount of capital at very, very high valuations. And some of these companies are having to spend a lot of money on customer acquisition in order to continue to meet their growth targets, which make the kind of long-term profitability prospects for these companies questionable. We've also seen a similar phenomenon uh, this year with Farfetch, which is for the past few years been a, a company that the industry has been watching very, very carefully. It did a very successful IPO about a year ago but over the past year, as the competition in the market around you know e-commerce and uh, particularly luxury e-commerce has continued to grow, a lot of the players have had to spend a lot of money on marketing and customer acquisition. And this has kind of deteriorated margins. So it will be interesting to watch this space that although it's buoyant and there's all these new players, there will be a shakeout at some stage. And I think particularly as we enter an economic environment that, you know, seems to be darker and maybe more challenging, the kind of bar will be raised for these players in terms of actually being able to deliver on all of the expectations.
0: Now, you mentioned that some of the the fashion tech players are are focused on previously owned or, or rented fashion. Uh, which is in tune with the zeitgeist around reuse and circular economy type principles. Um, I also noticed in this year's survey that, uh, you know, executives said sustainability is both the number one challenge and indeed the the number one opportunity facing the industry. So just say a little bit more about sustainability and, and how the fashion industry is positioning itself and responding.
1: So as an industry... One of the biggest challenges is to get a common understanding, to say, yes, well, this is a big opportunity, and yes, it presents a huge challenge, like what exactly is sustainable fashion? It's not quite as easy as you see in some of these other sectors. The inherent challenge is, as an industry, in order to continue growing, we are driving consumers to purchase more, to consume more, and actually, there's this dilemma, which is as we drive more consumption, we're actually growing the carbon footprint of the industry. So I think as we look to next year, there is this dilemma around growth, which is like, how do we continue to have growing profitable businesses while addressing the kind of carbon footprint, the sustainable footprint of our of our industry? And so, you know, I think about it as both, yes, a challenge, but also, finding that common understanding and kind of recalibrating what we see as being a healthy way for this industry to exist and that sounds like maybe sounds slightly conceptual or philosophical but i do think it's an underlying challenge
2: so we should all go undressed
1: no i think it's about you know as we think about observing consumption in in our industry I think the biggest challenge is really around fast fashion companies and you know the consumer behavior that we've been encouraging which is people purchase items of clothing and sometimes they're only worn once or twice before they're discarded or they're sitting in a closet. I think there's something like you know the average US consumer now purchases 60 new garments of clothing per year or more than that. You know there is a dynamic here that we've trained the consumer to pursue which is not consistent with the industry's supposed goals of becoming more sustainable. And I see an inherent contradiction there. It feels like the elephant in the room. And that seems like an area that we as an industry are really going to have to get our heads around.
2: And I think to make uh, things even more complex, that's very much a perspective on the Western and developed markets. Uh, You still have, you know, big emerging markets, as we discussed earlier. And in the big emerging markets, one of the Categories that are boosted uh, when growth pushes the middle class uh, is, uh, is clothing. So, uh, that's where people spend a significant share of their wallet, uh, you know, on apparel. And I think it's not a solution, you know, to prevent people from, from doing that. So, we probably need to find uh, solutions on doing that in a less harmful way to the planet. And as a matter of fact, uh, the fashion industry is, is a dirty industry. People don't, don't like that uh, to be pointed out. But the way we still produce a lot of garments in the industry is a not very efficient. More than 20% of products end up in landfill um, without uh, ever being used. And also the way we produce the water treatment, the pollution uh, that comes with it, you know, labor rights. I think it comes back to your terminology aspect. What do we really mean with sustainability? But if you take a closer look, it's not a very nice picture. And therefore, I think the industry uh, has an obligation to improve that.
1: And not to mention, in addition to impacts on the environment, the impacts on the people who make our clothes. And so, One of the things I think as an industry we're really going to have to get our heads around is that you know we're producing garments sometimes in very very questionable conditions and not paying people enough to make those clothes just so we can provide cheap fast fashion to consumers often in the west sometimes in the east Um, and that's a very very challenging conundrum to get our heads around. And I think this is the thing that we need to get out and really discuss openly now, especially as it's front of mind, uh, according to our executive survey uh, for executives, which is the first time in the history of the survey that we've done that sustainability has appeared at the top of the list. So I think that's the, the kind of silver lining here is that executives have finally taken note. And I think it's time for us as an industry to really you know, look at this and face it head on.
0: I'm intrigued by fast fashion, which you mentioned in there. But, you know, I would have thought that the fast fashion business model is particularly challenged um, in a world in which a lot of consumers, you know, now care deeply about sustainability. So, you know, does fast fashion have a future?
1: I mean, I think it has a future, but not in its current form. And I think the Fast fashion players, a couple of whom appear very highly on this list of super winners are if you have an honest private conversation with executives who work there off the record, they'll talk to you. And there is a existential crisis happening amongst these players because they understand what's going on in the market. They understand shifting consumer sentiments. There is the consumer. Focus and sentiment around the fast fashion segment is really beginning to shift, especially amongst informed consumers in the kind of Gen Z and millennial cohorts who are increasingly stepping back and saying, listen, I'm looking ahead. I see Greta Thunberg in the streets with you know hundreds of thousands of climate protesters having these school strikes. I see the extinction rebellion in the streets shutting down huge parts of uh, London and it's building awareness mainstream mass awareness around you know climate crisis i think these things are really going to become a collision at some stage so if you're an executive sitting at one of these fast fashion players and you're observing the change happening in the market i'm sure you're thinking wow like we're going to have to we're going to have to really radically rethink how we as a business exist i don't think it means there's no future for these companies i just think it means The business model, just as they've been so creative and thinking about building responsive supply chains, making sure they address the trends and things that consumers are after, they have to apply that same level of thinking and innovation into the way they manage their supply chain. So they're not so quite so damaging to the environment.
0: Talking of supply chain, we, we haven't really touched yet on, on the fashion store and the role that it plays. We, we talked about direct-to-consumer business models. We talked about the impact of uh, you know, the big e-commerce platforms. What, what does that mean for the future of the fashion store? What role does it play uh, in this changing world?
1: The store definitely has a future. Um, but I think what we've started to see is that the store is playing a different role now than perhaps the transactional role that it played in the past. And whereas our industry was formerly focused on a very simple chain of events that would drive consumers to a store, so a collection would be designed, advertisements would be published, consumers would see advertisements and they go directly to a store, that customer journey has radically changed. And what it means is consumers are obviously getting information on digital channels now and they're also able to transact on digital channels. The store therefore performs an additional role which is to really service that consumer, to immerse them in the brand, to give them the access and education and you know service that they can't get on a digital platform or an e-commerce platform and I think the most innovative retailers are understanding how these digital and physical channels work together. I think people who are talking about the retail apocalypse and the end of the store. I mean, yes, there is a shakeout happening on high streets, but in all of those places where you see you know, stores closing, you see new ones opening up. In fact, some of them are the stores of brands that used to be digitally native brands that didn't have any physical presence. And the fact that companies like Away and Glossier and some of these other ones are actually building physical stores shows that even for digital brands, having a physical presence is really important part of creating that connection with the customer.
2: I couldn't agree more. I think it's not, you know, digital versus uh, offline. I think it's in the end all a combination, yeah? And call it omnichannel or digitally-enabled uh, retail, in the end, it needs to satisfy consumer needs. And there's different needs. So there's a convenience need that online is typically very good uh, in serving. Uh, there is a need for entertainment and excitement uh, that a store, in many ways, is better able to serve. But there's also you know, a need for some neighborhood shopping. And if you look at one of the trends that we've identified in the new report... We see that there is a trend uh, towards that neighborhood store, but it's not just the kind of small store that is convenient and close by. It's a digitally enabled store where some of the leading players look into how can you use the information you get from your e-commerce, from your loyalty systems, from all the other stores you have to provide an offering that is tailored to a specific neighborhood. Um, and we believe if you use modern technology and data, uh, you have a good opportunity to also uh, enable offline stores to be successful.
0: Yeah, so the
1: future
2: is indeed omnichannel. The future is omnichannel.
1: I'd say the present is omnichannel, it's already there. It's just in some cases a matter of some of the players catching up with where the consumer's been already for a few years now.
0: So I think we are out of time for today. Um, But Imran and Akeem, thank you for a fascinating conversation about the state of fashion.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Simon,
1: for the good discussion. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the McKinsey podcast.
0: And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the McKinsey podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe to the series on your favorite podcast app And to read more about the state of fashion, retail, sustainability, and so much more, please visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.